The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July. Hello and welcome to the edition. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. Today on the podcast, we'll be looking at Taiwan, the return of Partygate, and the rising price of restaurants. First, I'm joined by Ian Williams, the author of The Fire of the Dragon, China's New Cold War, and Alessio Patellano, Professor of War and Strategy in East Asia at King's College London, to talk about how the war in Ukraine has changed the thinking in Taiwan. Ian, in the magazine this week, you write about the lessons that Taiwan has learned from the war in Ukraine. Could you just briefly summarize for our listeners what some of those lessons are? And has Taiwan's defense strategy changed since the war started? I think it's been a real wake-up call for Taiwan because they've always had what they would call the, the faced grey warfare, uh, grey zone warfare, whether this is disinformation, cyber attacks, constant intimidation by Chinese forces flying in towards the island or ships towards the island, exercises from the PLA. But this has come as a real wake-up call because it's an autocracy trying to snuff out a local democracy in Europe. And this resonates with the Taiwanese. And it comes at a time when there's been considerable debate within Taiwan over the future of their defence, over how they best would repulse any Chinese invasion. And they'd already come to a conclusion that you can't match China fighter by fighter, ship by ship, submarine by submarine. It's simply not possible because the Chinese have too much money to spend. The PLA is too powerful. So you have to do it in a different way. They call it asymmetric warfare, where you have a a force which is far less powerful using different sorts of assets, whether they're drones, whether they're shoulder or precision missiles whether they're smart minds. But you have to think of another way of stopping and countering and increasing the cost of an invasion, the porcupine strategy, they call it, to make the island indigestible. And watching the resilience of Ukraine, watching the way they've been able to, so far, thwart a far more powerful army, has really encouraged those in Taiwan who've been pushing hard for the adoption of of, of a different sort of defence strategy. It was already there. They were already moving in, in that direction. But I think Ukraine has come as a real sort of inspiration and encouragement to them. And Alessio, do you think that the faltering Russian invasion of Ukraine would be enough to deter China? Do they look at this porcupine strategy and pause for thought, do you think? I suppose what I'm really asking is, how realistic do you think a Chinese invasion is in the foreseeable future? I think we have to 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 offer a sort of a sensible answer to your question. We have to sort of break it down into two components. Um, are the Chinese looking at what is happening in Ukraine and rethinking their timetable to be in a position to possess the military means to take assertive, aggressive, uh, from a military point of view, action towards Taiwan? No, of course not. That sort of timetable continues to be there. If anything, 
I think it reinforces the fact that, you know, by 2027, we have the milestone of the um, PLA having to be in a position to um, deliver on, you know, the centenary of their establishment. And it is agreed across different documents, official documents in China um, at the highest possible level that that includes also possess the military means to be in a position to take over operations against Taiwan. That does not change. And by 2035, we are going to be looking at a PLA that has a timetable to be in a position uh, to be a sort of a, a world-class military, whatever that means. We do have an idea, but none of this has changed. Now, on the other hand, is this sort of raising doubts and questions about how you get to that point, that you have that option, of course, the Chinese are paying attention, they are looking at things in two ways. One is exactly what Ian described. The Chinese are very well aware that since roughly 2018-19, when Admiral Xin was, uh, was the head of the armed forces in Taiwan, the shift towards the porcupine strategy that Ian just mentioned um, was something that they started to pay attention to because they understand that in that asymmetric game, Taiwan can present a potentially formidable challenge to their plans. But now this has been sort of accelerated because they see the sort of the, the Russian performance, they see the Ukrainian performance, and that is raising question. Having said so, to what extent you, you know, implicit in your, in your question, there is also the matter of like, how worried are they that they might find themselves in a situation like the Russians, like with strong conviction that it's going to be like a walk in the park? And actually, it isn't. It's quite the opposite. I think it's, that, that is a harder, if you want, element of your question to answer for two reasons. One, some of the assumptions, you know, COVID has affected us all. And one of the ways in which it has affected us is, is the ability to regularly engage with the Chinese, Chinese counterparts and see where they are, where their thinking is. So the granularity of our understanding of how events such as the war in Ukraine would impact their thinking, it's less visible to us because, because we don't have the usual tools that we would have had in the past to engage with them. And the second way in which this has to be put into context is, well, you know, uh, how we see things about what is unfolding in Ukraine a certain way, because it's based on our own assumptions. The Chinese assumption about Russia are that Russians militarily were not, they had a, a tremendous amount of battle experience, but perhaps not as much cutting edge technology and capabilities as they think they do. That affects your assumption on like, yeah, well, you know, how the Russians are performing doesn't necessarily mean that we will be in the same situation, number one. Number two, because of that lack of communication that they have with the external world that I mentioned that I mentioned moments ago, it also means that what they are seeing in terms of uh, about Taiwan might very well influence by their own bias vis-a-vis Taiwan in the sense that, well, of course, it could be that the Ukrainians responded the way they did, but the Taiwanese won't be in the same position. Or it doesn't mean necessarily that looking what the Ukrainians are doing will elicit two Chinese elites and senior military thinkers, or oh, this might very well happen in Taiwan as well. Hence, let's get ready for it, or let's rethink our plans. That we don't know, and we cannot assume, because one thing we know is that the Russians' invasion tell us is that sometimes, in isolation, you develop assumptions which affect your conops and in turn, do not change the fact that you're going to take a certain action, and that action turns out to be really, very well, Ian, wrong. Ian, if, 
if the Chinese assumption about Taiwan, uh, as as Alicia just just phrased it there, is that oh well, you know the Ukrainians reacted in this certain way, but the Taiwanese would not, might if an invasion happened, might the Chinese army be in for for a surprise? I mean, you state in your piece that seventy percent of Taiwanese say they would take up arms to defend to defend Taiwan. I think that's been one of the more surprising things to emerge from this, because I know the US and to some extent leaders in Taiwan had always been uncertain. I wouldn't say about the will to fight, but about the mood among younger Taiwanese. Yes, they were far more pro-independence. Yes, they had a far stronger sense of Taiwanese identity. But would they defend their country? Would they take up arms? And I think the response to the aggression in Ukraine has surprised even those in, in, in Taiwan's leadership, the extent to which young people have rushed to do courses on civic defence, on first aid, on, on basic techniques to, for, for defending themselves. These courses have always been around, but they've just been completely overwhelmed in, in recent weeks. And I think to pick up uh, on one of those earlier points, in my conversations with our ministers in Taipei, with, with Joseph Wu, for instance, they're being very cautious about how chi- China will read the lessons of Ukraine. On the one hand, logic would would suggest that they would look at the, at the unity of Western purpose, the strength of sanctions, the resilience of the Ukrainian forces, and they would perhaps have pause for thought. But as Wu pointed out to me, you're assuming a certain degree of rationality, which may not exist in autocratic leaders. And they could easily take the view that, yes, Taiwan is learning lessons. Yes, they're going to speed up the way they change their defensive stance. But that's an argument to move quicker against Taiwan. So actually, it could well be that they are more in danger as a result of what's happening in Ukraine than they were before. And certainly, they've been encouraged by the strength of Western unity. And they would like to think that as a fellow liberal democracy, they too would be able to rely on an an international coalition to at least impose sanctions to to arm them, if not come militarily to their defence. But certainly, they're not going to depend on that. And I think one of the things that came over in my conversations is that they are determined to demonstrate that they can and will defend themselves. Well, uh, Alicia, I'd, I'd like to just talk a little more about Ian's point there about Western unity. What do you think uh, are some of the ways that Western countries, or perhaps non-Western democratic countries, can help Taiwan? I mean, Joe Biden this week, in, in speaking in Tokyo, he actually said that the, the US military would defend Taiwan, which is obviously a break from the official policy of uh, strategic ambiguity uh, must be said. The White House then slightly dampened dampened his, his comments, but but we are seeing more statements like that, as well as of course arms supplies to Taiwan. Is the West doing enough, and what more could be done? I think perhaps one of the best examples to look at is Japan, because Japan and in particular Japan in light of Ukraine. Um, in, in a number of ways. First of all, of course, in Japan already, the debate when, when it comes to Taiwan has changed quite considerably. The last couple of years, um, even the MOD, um, traditional defence white paper published every year, changed the vocabulary slightly and sort of really sort of putting an emphasis on the fact that 
And whatever happens across the Strait of Taiwan does have direct repercussions on Japanese national security. And, and the Japanese have been very clear on engaging in a number of different ways. You know, this is not just about supporting militarily uh, a country like, you know, Europe is doing at the moment and the United States are doing at the moment in Ukraine. This is about also, when it comes to Taiwan in particular, to keep Taiwanese visibility on the international stage, to have in Taiwan being... Um, a fellow democracy that is perfectly embedded into questions about resilience. I mean, the EMP's talks are very much about uh, semiconductors and how Taiwan is central to supply chains. Some some critical elements of their power are economies and prosperity. So we need to do more and build upon that, right? We need to integrate Taiwan in that international space um, whether it is multilateral institutions, working groups, whether it is um, through genuine economic cooperation, you know, and, and even in the UK, um, Taiwan has um, a policy of uh, uh, transition towards decarbonisation and, and addressing climate change with um, a focus on offshore uh, wind farming, something that the UK is cooperating with Taiwan over. So creating, right, a thicker, if you want, tissue that connects Taiwan to the rest of the world obviously makes, by default, Taiwan an in, a matter of international importance, significance and uh, sort of centrality. And that's certainly what Japan has been doing at one end. On the other, I think it is certainly very important to say that Taiwan has a number of uh, capabilities that are purchased from overseas, the United States, France, um, and therefore it has access to training program, exchange program, developing opportunities to do that even more. What is the difference between Ukraine 2022 and Ukraine in 2014? Countries like the UK from 2014 have started to build up their support to Ukraine. And when the rainy day came about, there were a number of provisions and supports in terms of uh, assistance, whether training, whether capabilities, were already in place. So we build upon something that was already there, that was designed to help to support what Ian's described very eloquently in his article, their plan. First of all, this is about they taking sort of, um, the Taiwanese taking upon themselves to defend themselves. We need to support that effort, right? So, so creating the foundation to have that on a more regular footing, I think, is one other uh, way. And, but overall, um, I would say, again, we do already have a model. And certainly the fact that Biden made the comments it did in Tokyo, not in DC. It speaks to the fact that Tokyo is comfortable with the American president making that, 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 uh, that point. And indeed, the American president has the confidence and trust of his Japanese partners to be able to make that statement in Tokyo while they're hosting a number of meetings. So Japan, to me, if, you know, if the question is, like, do we have someone we can look at in terms of how to comprehensively make uh, uh, Taiwan more resilient in case of aggression, I think Japan represents a really interesting space to watch because it sits at that you know, difficult space. Being a neighbour of China, you need to be careful what you do, but you also understand that there are values at stake, there is a fellow democracy at stake and a democracy with a variety sort of with quite a few million of people in it. And so empowering that is just as important. Well, Ian and Alicia, thank you very much indeed. Next, was Sue Gray's report on Downing Street parties a game changer or a damp squib? 
Well, The Spectator's editor, Fraser Nelson, and our political editor, James Forsyth, join me now to give their thoughts. James, in your political column this week, you write about the uh, the mood in, in Westminster now that the Sue Gray report has finally been released. So what is the current feeling among Tory MPs? So I think the Sue Gray report is bad, but it is not devastating. There is not some new revelation in it that, that, that is going to see the letters go in overnight to, 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 to trigger a no-confidence vote in Boris Johnson. I think that has created a certain confidence among some of Boris Johnson's allies. I think some of the more cannier ones, though, are still very worried about this Privileges Committee investigation into whether or not he misled the House of Commons or not. I think what you've seen this week in Westminster is that the vast majority of Tory MPs' preferred position on Partygate is to say nothing. There have been a small number of MPs, I think it's now three more, who have called for Boris Johnson to go compared to where it was before. And one Tory peer, I think, Lord Finkelstein, that's it. He he had called for it previously. Oh, I see, yeah. But but, but the whole stock, though, is really surprisingly small. But then you had only, I think, nine positive, like, helpful interventions from Tory MPs in the Commons statement on the Grey Report, which leaves the vast majority of Tory MPs, you know, trying not to say anything at all about this. I think this is why why the Privileges Committee investigation is so dangerous, because those people on the committee, those Tory MPs on the committee, will not be able to not say anything at all. They will have to come to a view. And and that, I think, is why Boris Johnson needs to kind of get his defence for that worked out very quickly and also explain why he didn't move to correct the record at the very first possible moment, which is what you're meant to do if you've unintentionally misled the House. So if the Privileges Committee uh, comes to the conclusion that Boris Johnson did deliberately mislead Parliament... Is it is it just impossible then for, for the Prime Minister to, to survive the scandal? One former cabinet minister who would like Boris Johnson to go said to me um, this week, you know, the, the Tory parliamentary party, you know, we don't have much of a spine, but we have enough of a spine that we that we that we couldn't put up with that. So I think that would be one of those moments that would undoubtedly you know they couldn't vote to overturn I don't think they would have the votes to overturn on the floor of the House of Commons. I think it's I think you know We've talked about lots of impossible situations that aren't impossible, but you cannot have a situation where the Prime Minister was suspended from the House of Commons for misleading. It just, it would just would That's not. what you think. No, um, <laughs> that, that, just, that, just, that is just not uh, feasible. So the Privileges Committee investigation is, is, is the big out, uh, remaining risk to Boris Johnson. Although I think it is worth saying that, that, that while the Grey Report is bad, I think quite a lot of Tory MPs have, who have looked at it I've said, look, this is this is grim reading, but it is not devastating reading. Okay. Well, I want to know, Fraser, if you think it's devastating reading, because the papers, the uh, the day of recording, which is uh, on a Thursday, uh, the papers today had a sort of variation of reactions. The Daily Mail's headline was, "Is that it?" Uh, but the Mirror uh, went for laughing at us all, and the headline on the Spectator's leader column this week was Johnson's guilt. So I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about where where his guilt lies, as you see it? Well, I think there are two separate things here. One is the, if you like, the technical aspects of it. Did he basically cross the Met's threshold for a fine? Now, I have never been particularly interested in that. What I'm more interested is in the culture that he oversaw. And there's now so much evidence over there. The the pictures that they released were so mild as to be almost exculpatory. You've got sitting around half a dozen of them around a table with M&S sandwiches and Boris Johnson holding a can of Coke. I mean, that wasn't the problem. The problem was the, for example, the ABBA party, which the Sue Gray didn't investigate because she said the police were on that particular case. But the emails which they revealed, I thought, really were, were, were quite striking. We saw from this that Number 10 staff knew 
absolutely knew they were breaking the rules because they were being told to hide the wine from the cameras in number 10. Uh, one of them said, I think we got away with it, w- with the drinking. They would have known, of course, who wouldn't, that their regular Wine Time Friday, having it held at four o'clock. By the way, the Spectator, we didn't open a glass until, what, half past five Fridays? Yeah, it depends on the day. Well, but the thing is, four o'clock on a Friday, regularly during lockdown, of course that was against the rules. And what I found particularly hard to stomach was was Boris Johnson's defence in the press conference. Here, here's a clip of what he had to say. I briefly attended gatherings to thank them for everything they had done, because I believe that recognising achievement and preserving morale are essential duties of leadership. So listen to that, the essential duties of leadership. Now, I don't remember a bit in his lockdown laws, which granted an exemption for the essential duties of leadership. He was saying that he thought it was the right thing to do, to go to salute a colleague who'd been leaving to demonstrate service. Morally, he's completely right. But his laws made it illegal for anybody else to do the same. And if anybody else in any organisation had leaving drinks during his lockdown laws, then the police, under Boris Johnson's instructions, would have been there to apprehend them and give them fines. We also, a couple of weeks ago, in The Spectator, published a list of the kind of offences that are still being taken through the magistrates' courts. One of them was a childminder who had dropped off a card for the child in her care and ended up nabbed by the police, taken to court and given a fine. Now, was she acting to discharge her leadership duties or her professional duties? Of course she was, but that wasn't enough to get her off the hook as far as the courts were concerned. And that's what I find literally unforgivable. Not a word I use very often, but it is so in this case. That even now, I don't think the Prime Minister understood the regime he imposed on the rest of the country, where nobody, absolutely nobody, have a liberty to say that either what they were doing was essential, therefore had to get over his laws, or that they were doing morally the right thing. I mean, those two women who went to have a a cup of coffee in Derbyshire um, were doing the right thing. They were availing themselves uh, by the way, they were having a cup of coffee, shall I say, outside in the park walking, and they were intercepted by the police. Now, they wouldn't have got away telling the police they were doing the right thing. So I think my greatest concern is that we're missing the whole point here. The problem, the original sin here, was the draconian, needless, and as it increasingly turns out, useless lockdown laws that criminalise so much of human activity in this country for so long. That is what Boris Johnson should be apologising for. James, one of the details of the Seagrave report that seems to have struck a bit of a a chord in the media is regarding the treatment of cleaners and security guards and and them being treated quite badly. Now, obviously, that's not breaking any rules or laws, but that could have quite severe political consequences, couldn't it? But I think it also does relate to, I think the point is that the the cleaners and security guards were sometimes suggesting that these events were clearly unwise. I think it will speak to a kind of a sense there was kind of cultural entitlement. I think that on... I mean, the problem is that number 10 was the building which initially, I think, for, for, for reasons of the reasons that, that, you know, government had to continue, you know, but life continued more as normal there than elsewhere. And I think that that is what is the mistake that was made is that the Downing Street failed to realise that it had to obey the rules that it was imposing on everyone else more strictly than anybody else. It wasn't a question of where can you could you find some 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 bit of the rules that you could you could flex or whatever. And obviously some of these things go far beyond flexing, which is why the police have handed out uh, so many of these fixed penalty notices. But also that you know, if you were going to ask other people to forsake social interactions of all sorts, you had to forsake social interactions even if you were there in the same building already for work. 
And uh, Fraser, something James says in his column is that, you know, even without Partygate, the next few months for Johnson are going to be particularly tough, uh, especially with inflation and the cost of living crisis. I want to get your thoughts about Rishi Sunak's comments to the Commons today. He introduced a windfall tax, which I think is a grave error. He basically the language that he used I found resonant of, of Gordon Brown quite a lot of it. The um, the cabinet discussion they had before that sounded not just like a a Labour cabinet, but a pretty far left Labour cabinet, with Boris Johnson saying at the end that they might as well take the money because otherwise they're going to give it back to the shareholders and there's nothing else to do with it. You and Nadim Zahawi, the education secretary, thinking of other people you could target, like petrol um, supermarket retailers. So you had, I think this is quite a sort of turning point anyway, from a Conservative Party who who likes to talk about the virtues of low taxation in theory, but when push comes to shove, have ended giving us the highest tax rate in, in 72 years, and probably by the time we do the sums after the windfall tax, even more. I mean, yes, they have given relief, but it's a sort of relief to people that, that strikes me. Rather than just lower people's taxes and not take as much people's money as you think the Conservatives are supposed to do, they're very keen to be targeting it, to be seen to be sort of choosing who wins and, and, and who doesn't. And I think that the real problem this government faces isn't inflation. I think that will go, it will dissipate eventually. The real problem is growth and the threat of recession. Nothing in today's statement makes that threat of recession any less likely. And quite a lot of it, I think, intensifies the risk. Well, I think the stuff in the statement does make the threat of recession less likely. Because if you had not offered people any support, just to take that amount of consumer spending out of the economy would have been recessionary. So if you hadn't done anything to help people with their energy bills, I think it undoubtedly it doesn't this doesn't the statement doesn't guarantee that there's not going to be a recession. But if you had not offered people any help at all, then I think that you would have undoubtedly had a recession because of a squeeze on household income. Then I think the next point I would make about the, the windfall tax, which is the oil and gas sector is not some kind of pure free market sector of the economy. You know, the North Sea had considerable government support when energy prices dropped in uh, you know, 2012 uh, to keep the North Sea going when it were, when it was uneconomic to do so. So I think you can't you you can't say oh you know so so a windfall tax on that is a slightly different philosophical kettle of fish to uh, to suddenly imposing it on some random industry and it, and I think also it is worth noting that the, 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 these profits are so high not because they ploughed money into innovation. Or anything like that, but simply basically because Vladimir Putin has invaded Ukraine. So I think that I think that a windfall tax on these profits has a point and a, and a purpose to it. To those people who say it is kind of unfatterite, I would point out the most significant budget of the entire Thatcher era, including the 1981 budget, included a windfall tax. And very just finally to to return briefly to Boris Johnson and his 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 future, I, I want to end by asking a question, the same question that I asked last time uh, Partygate was. On this podcast, which is, I did a, I made a bet with our colleague Emma Byrne uh, in the 9th of December 2021, and I bet that Boris Johnson would still be Prime Minister in a year's time. James and Fraser, am I going to win my bet? I think you can't know until the Privileges Committee has reported back. And I think I said last time you asked this, I always thought this was more dangerous than the Great Inquiry. Um, I suspect you are going to win your bet. Well, you're right, you yes, can't know, good. but that's the whole point of betting. And uh, I think you will win your bet um, because, I mean, look at what he's just escaped. 
If you can get through a lockdown, a deeply damaging lockdown that you turn out to be flouting yourself, if you can get through promising to cut taxes and raising them to a 72-year high, if you can get through promising to be the government that will make people better off and ending up making them the biggest squeeze in living memory, then you can get through pretty much anything. I can't quite see who's going to succeed Boris Johnson as well. His greatest single asset is Keir Starmer as an opponent and a lack of plausible Tory candidates to succeed him. James and Fraser, thank you very much. And finally, if rising restaurant prices are giving you grief, then you're not alone. Ascender Max Tone Graham and the Spectator's wiki man himself, Rory Sutherland, join me now to talk about the inflation of menu metrics. Ascender, in the magazine this week, you write about rising restaurant prices and uh, whether they are actually worth it. Is eating in a restaurant going to become a rare treat or perhaps even a, a rash financial decision? Well, I do wonder about that. I mean, I must say, just to go out for a bowl of pasta, a glass of wine these days, it seems to have got incredibly expensive. I mean, I feel it was sort of, for two people to do that, was sort of £40 three or four years ago. Now it's more like £60 to £80, I've heard. Just, for, just if you dare to have a first course, you know, you, you, you come out more often reeling from shock than from any nice effects of the wine. Yes, and it's getting worse, isn't it? Well, I, mean, I do feel it really is. I mean, I just have looked at restaurant prices going over the last few years, and they just have quite, they just have crept up. And that was before this latest mm. spike in inflation. It, that was happening in the in the two percent time. What's going to happen? What is going to happen now? Is it going to get even worse? And do you think this is affecting all restaurants, as you know, sort of middle tier restaurants as well as the high end ones? I, I mean, do you see this as something which is going on across the? The spectrum? Well, I wonder because you see restaurants very full up, don't you? And you see delivery drivers everywhere and the delivery prices are the same as restaurant prices. So people, I worry, are actually bankrupting themselves by not thinking about what they're doing, by having this craving for a restaurant experience, which I certainly suffer from, desperate <laughs> longing for the joy and buzz and fun of a restaurant, not having to do the washing up and something being given to you, and then living the effects the next day of buyer's remorse. Uh, Rory, where do you stand on this? Have you noticed a similar trend to, to what Ascender is describing? Yes, because one of the things I notice is that, with the exception of chains, and even not always then, restaurant going is certainly not a family-friendly experience. So if you think about it, OK, if you have two friends who both meet at a restaurant, that's two salaries paying for two meals. When you go out as a family, it's quite often one salary paying for four meals. And that multiplier is actually pretty extreme. And so I'd increasingly noticed, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm certainly in the sort of top decile of wage earners in the UK. And if it's hurting me, it's hurting a hell of a lot of other people. And I noticed particularly when you go out as a family, the three digit bill and actually that, you know, even the 200 pound bill uh, is no longer actually that surprising. Hmm. And I, I, I do find it extraordinary because, you know, my father is, you know, a lifetime restaurant hater for the reason of the extravagance. And I'd always thought he was kind of wrong or missing out on the other, uh, what you might call the other intangibles of eating out uh, in looking at it purely as a calorific function. But I'm starting to agree with him now. And of course, it may be a little bit driven. I don't know to what extent Deliveroo messes with the business model, because of course, markups on wine and booze have always been a fairly substantial part of the, the restaurant business model. And you do have a younger generation of people who don't drink very much. You have increasingly adults who drink very modestly, if at all, at lunchtime and not that extravagantly in the evenings. So that can't help either, I would have thought. So you might, you know, you, you might end up with a world where the drinkers are subsidising everybody else. 
Yes. Asenda, do you agree with Rory about the family point, that actually the, the, the families are the ones who suffer perhaps most from, from the changes Absolutely. of prices? Absolutely. It, it goes up in that ridiculous way to, to, to well into the hundreds. Yes, mm. my latest bills were 140 for a pizzeria and, a, and 390 for a, a treat birthday. Um, and that was, you know, really was a shock. I think you just suddenly see at the bottom a very small print of 15% discretionary service charge will be added to your bill. And that actually adds up to £60 at the more expensive restaurant for the very thing that it, and the very thing you're paying to go for, to a restaurant for in the first place, which yes. is actually brought to you. So I do think, I worry that restaurants will become places for singletons and young couples, but not for families, which seems a pity. Something you mentioned in your piece is about, you mentioned that you were brought up in the 1970s and that and that the, the going to a restaurant was such an exciting treat. But perhaps something might, that has changed in the 70s, I would think it's before my time, but say, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, is that there's more, there also is more availability, however, of different types of produce and sort of exotic produce that you can get in a supermarket. So the ability yes. to produce something of perhaps restaurant quality at home, has that yeah, become easier? Yeah, that's definitely improved. So- uh, definitely improved. And I think genuinely, actually, if you put food side by side, a restaurant meal and, uh, and, and home cook, the actual home cook would actually taste better. And I think you can judge that by the leftovers. I, if you ever bring a doggy bag home, the restaurant food the next day is pretty disgusting, actually, compared with home leftovers. This is, this is actually a very fair point. So Gusto is one example. Then you have things like Dish Patch and MySupperHero.com, which effectively deliver at various stages of preparation restaurant quality food or even restaurant made food for reheating at home or for preparation at home. But you don't then get the wonderful bars. The thing we all long for is that sort of getting out of your own world in that candlelit white tablecloth world. And that's what I'm and going to find only, hard to get out. My only quibble is, as, in, as, an ex, as a vapour and as an ex-smoker and as a bit of an introvert, I'm half with you on that. But I think that there are also times where we actually... Uh, you know, one of the things, one of the trends undoubtedly that's growing is casual dining. And we don't necessarily always want the pomp and general elaboration of an elaborate restaurant meal. There are occasions which demand it, I think, special occasions, birthdays, anniversaries. But left to our own devices, we'd probably prefer a rather simpler approach to eating out. Uh, certainly the one that per- per- pervaded in the 70s, where fine dining was completely unrecognisable compared to what you'd consider fine dining today. But I don't know, when you have young children, children love going to restaurants, don't they? It is, I mean, it was the weight of my son's heart when they were young because they just, they just love the whole excitement of it. Yes, maybe they love it too much. Yeah, and that's when, it becomes, that's when you really start. <laughs> and there's one, uh, there's an observation I love in your, your piece of sender, which is that many menus now, they omit the pound signs on the menus when they have the price. So instead of 27 pounds, it's just the number 27 uh, do you think this is a way of disguising um, somehow on a s- slight subconscious level, disguising the fact that you are being asked to pay so much? I think it must be that, don't yeah. you? It just must be. The pound sign is too vulgar. We can't mention such no, things. Uh, actually, spelling out the price rather than putting it in digits also apparently reduces the perceived cost. There's quite a lot of established uh, research in menu design. And then there's the very clever use of kind of panels in menus. It used to be three, effectively three sequences of, you know, the, the starter or, you know, the entree, as we'd call it, the Americans wouldn't, then main course, then pudding, and you'd have five choices in each. And what you increasingly see are man- menus with sort of highlight hero 
food placed in a panel in the middle. And so that also, I think, has probably helped bump up general ordering by 5, 10, 15 percent or so. Yes, when pretty which can't have helped. £7.50. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Mm. I will um, mention one bit of uh, good news, which I've noticed, uh, which is that the relative price of cocktails compared to wine and other drinks has more or less stayed the same, whereas everything else has gone up. So in my childhood, if when I say childhood, in my teenagehood or in my early 20s, if you were the guy who asked for a gin and tonic, OK, or worse still, a Long Island iced tea or, a you know, an old fashioned, you were being an arsehole in any kind of communal dining occasion because you were asking for a drink which was twice as expensive as everybody else's. That's no longer the case. You know, some stupid bucket of Chilean Merlot at 16 percent. You know, those large glasses of wine are now at sort of seven, eight, nine pounds. Well, you might as well have a drink that involves a bit of skill rather than some decomposing grapes, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, Rory and Isenda, thank you very much indeed for, for joining me. That's it for this week. If you're interested by the topics we discussed, do grab yourself a copy of the magazine. I'm William Moore, and I'll see you next week. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.